Welcome to the Faith at Work Sermon Podcast. I'm Pastor Jim Melvin. Each week I turn to the Bible and our faith for inspiration and consolation. The Bible story that I've chosen for this week, Jesus preaching blessings and woes to a large group of people after he comes down from praying on the mountain, is a challenging one. Now, if you choose to continue with me, and I hope you will, be prepared to feel some discomfort. If it's any consolation, I will share in your discomfort. So I challenge you not to look away. As I said, Jesus had been up on a mountain praying. This is a common behavior for Jesus as he seems to go off and prepare himself through prayer and communion with God when he wants to deliver important messages. Jesus' inner circle of 12 disciples are with him, but this story also includes a larger group of disciples, which is a general term for followers. We begin at Luke 6:17. After coming down from the mountain with the 12, Jesus stood on a level place with a large crowd of his disciples and a great number of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. They came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those tormented by unclean spirits were made well. The whole crowd was trying to touch him because power was coming out from him and healing them all. Then looking up at his disciples, he said, You who are poor are blessed, because the kingdom of God is yours. You who are now hungry are blessed, because you will be filled. You who now weep are blessed, because you will laugh. You're blessed when people hate you, when they exclude you, insult you, and slander your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Take note, your reward is great in heaven, for this is the way the ancestors used to treat the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your comfort. Woe to you who are now full, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are now laughing, for you will mourn and weep. And woe to you when all people speak well of you, for this is the way of their ancestors, that they used to treat the false prophets. Here ends the reading. A doctor enters the examination room, sits down across from his patient. He says, I have some good news, and some bad news for you. The worried patient says, Give it to me straight, Doc. What's the bad news? Let's get it out of the way. The doctor replies, You have a serious disease, and there is no cure. Hopefully, the patient asks, What's the good news? The doctor smiles and says, I was able to get a tea time for this afternoon. Like the doctor, Jesus had some good news and some bad news for the people who had gathered to hear him 
on the plane that day. But his good news, bad news was no joke. He had some good news, beatitudes, or blessings for the poor. Things were going to get better for them. But he has some bad news, woes for the rich. The future did not look bright for them. It often makes us squirm. When Jesus starts to talk about the rich and the poor, it seems so, well, judgmental. But Jesus is brutally honest. Maybe that's what he was up doing on the mountain, mustering the courage to offend some people. After all, didn't Jesus come to proclaim the good news to everyone? He did. But this good news can be bad news for some of us at times. But let's forge ahead. We want to sort out whether this is good news or bad news for us. If, we, if we're honest, we'll have to admit we want to figure out how we can make the story good news for us. First of all, you may wonder who the rich are in the world. Are they, are the rich billionaires? Are they millionaires? The one percenters? The ten percenters? Where's the cutoff line? We know that Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, Elon Musk, and Mark Zuckerberg, Zuckerberg are rich. But what about you and me? I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that if you are listening to the sound of my voice, you probably fall into the rich category in the context of this story. Now, I'm not one of those mega evangelists who lives in a mansion and owns my own private jet, but by any standard that Jesus would have used, I'm rich. I've got everything I need, pretty much everything I want. I have security. So you see, we're all in this together. So I've got some bad news for us. At the very least, Jesus has a wake-up call for us. One of our first reactions when we hear something that we don't like in the Bible or something Jesus says that doesn't quite square with our personal agendas, our first reaction is to look for a way out. Maybe I'm misunderstanding what Jesus meant. He couldn't have meant that. And one way to try to evade the woes that Jesus is laying down is to say, well, he wasn't speaking literally. He's talking about the spiritually poor. He's talking about those who are hungry for faith. The unfaithful. Nope. When Jesus is talking about the poor, he's talking about people who don't have enough to meet the essentials of life. When he's talking about the hungry, he's talking about those who don't have enough calories available to them each day. He's talking about people who are hated, He's talking about those who are despised and discriminated against just because they are who they are. And the sad are just, well, sad. 
Jesus' message, in a nutshell, is what I call the reversal of fortune. In many places and in many ways, Jesus reiterates that message. The last shall be first, and the first shall be last. Just before Jesus was born, his mother Mary rightly predicted that God had been working and would continue to work through her son to bring about this great reversal. She says to her cousin Elizabeth, The Lord's mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He's toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He's satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. Now in his preaching, Jesus is picking up that prophetic message and proclaiming it for everyone. The rich and the poor, the fortunate and the unfortunate here. Before we dive into deep waters of this message as it applies to us, it's important to think about the socio-economic context in which Jesus lived. How did people live in those days? Israel at the time of Jesus was made up of two main economic groups. We can call them the elites, those who possessed wealth, social status, and or political power, and the non-elites, the rest of the people. At that time, the entire Mediterranean world was controlled by the Roman Empire, and power and wealth was held by Roman elites and their supporters throughout the empire. In Israel, the Romans supported a local puppet monarch and government officials. The religious functionaries, such as priests and members of the Jewish council, were all members of a relatively small elite. Most of the population, however, fell into the non-elite category. The non-elites were people who owned little or no land, and thus had to earn their living through their own labor, often working the land as tenants of the wealthy landowners. The vast majority of rural people in ancient times lived at a subsistence level, constantly in danger of hunger or starvation if their crops failed. There was no safety net of Social Security or other government programs. Most farms were small, too small for farmers to make a comfortable living, and farmers forced to pay high taxes on what they did, did earn were always struggling. Well, Jesus has some good news for the non-elites. When he says, blessed are the poor and the hungry, he is not saying that it's good not to know where your next meal is coming from. He is saying that your status in life is going to change. When God's justice is established on earth, the non-elites, the poor, will experience the abundance that only the elites now experience. Jesus is a sign of that coming kingdom. This is where God is heading things. This is a message of hope for the future. Things won't always be this way. And although Jesus says your reward will be great in heaven, 
This is not just some pie-in-the-sky, by-and-by message. While Jesus always emphasizes heavenly rewards over earthly riches, he does not imply, never implies, that the poor should be satisfied even though they're starving. That's an excuse that only those who have enough make. To the elites, this is a message of warning. A serious warning. The lifestyle that you are currently living and the way that you conduct yourselves is not consistent with what God has in mind. God will not put up with economic practices, social practices, in which the many poor are exploited for the benefit of a privileged few. God does not condone people looking down upon people of a different nationality, race, or religion. God values all people. A world where the rich trample on the poor is not God's vision of creation. So, now you're beginning to get an idea why Jesus got crucified for this message. It's a natural human tendency to hold on to what we have and want more. I want security. But that tendency is called sinfulness when we put it before everything else. When the masses start to take this egalitarian message to heart, when the poor get restless, those who are in power will do whatever it takes to stay in power. When the crowds following Jesus started plotting political revolts, the Romans struck back with violent and brutal reprisals. Jesus was swept up in this escalating cycle of violence and paid for his role in stirring the people up with his life. In the ensuing centuries, his followers would be martyred, martyred for keeping the good news for the poor alive. Now, we need to apply the elite, non-elite model of society with caution. Most of us tend to think of our time in America as being made up of a three-tiered society. Traditionally, we think of ourselves as being divided into the upper class, the wealthy, the middle class, and the lower class, the poor, with the majority of Americans identifying as middle class. We also pride ourselves with the fact that we possess social and economic mobility. In the extreme, with hard work and smarts, the poor can become rich. Those of low status can elevate themselves. Let's face it, a self-educated rail splitter from the sticks, Abraham Lincoln, could elevate himself to become one of our greatest presidents. Nevertheless, this passage still packs a punch. Jesus could stand on the Capitol Mall in Washington, D.C. today and speak with the same healing power and relevance. 
New Testament scholar Sarah Heinrich puts it this way, God is creating a realm, bringing it to life among us by that same power that emanated from Jesus in which no one is hungry or mourning or poor or disregarded at the very same time that others are abundantly well-fed, rich, laughing, and respected. It's the contemporaneity of these two opposite circumstances that God promises to remedy and we are called to address in our own lives. As I said at the outset today, this message can be challenging, even threatening to those of us who don't have to worry where our next meal is coming from. That said, it need not be discouraging. In fact, we can be encouraged and inspired to create the conditions of social and economic justice that the Old Testament prophets and Jesus came to proclaim. Matter of fact, we're in a much better place to do that today. We have a lot of resources and a lot of history that we can rely on. So we will either dig in our heels and do everything we can to protect our privileged position, or we can open our hearts to find ways to create a world that is in tune with the just and compassionate kingdom of God. Now, examining history can tend to make us pessimistic. Reality seems to eternally pit the rich against the poor, the elite against the non-elite. That was the case of the powerful empires in antiquity. It was true in the centuries of war pitting nation against nation in Europe, Asia, and the Americas. It played itself out in the global struggle between communist and capitalist nations. In our own country, it led to the conflicts, often brutal, between labor and business interests. And it continues as countless political ideologies compete for dominance. In the end, however, the great reversal must be a matter of the human heart and the human spirit. In your heart and in your spirit. It is a message that can make hearts, the hearts of the poor, fill with comfort and hope. And it is a message that can melt the hearts of us rich to live with love and compassion. The message of the kingdom of God is for all. For in it, there will be no richer and poorer, hungry and well-fed, powerful and downtrodden. And as Isaiah says, justice will lead to peace. He said, The Lord will settle disputes among the nations and provide arbitration for many peoples. They will turn their swords into plows and their spears into pruning knives. Nation will not take up the sword against other nations, and they will never again train for war. Does that sound idealistic? Unrealistic? Well, 
That's up for you to decide. I have some bad news and some good news for you. The bad news is that the world is one messed up place. The good news is that it won't always be that way. Amen. Thank you for joining me today. Even as you are challenged, may God bless you, and may God give you comfort. May God's face shine upon you. May God look upon you with favor and give you peace.